Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. My name's Ian Mills, and I'm joined today by Dr. Nate Tilley. Hi, Nate. Hi, Ian. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. Nate joined us a few years ago as our expert in late antiquity when we discussed David Brackey's article on canon formation and Alexandria and Arianism and all those fun things. And he's back with us today for something even more in his wheelhouse, the history of Syriac literature. What are you working on these days, Nate? I work on things a bit later than the New Testament. I work on 7th century Syriac Christians and interested in uh, how Christians in the Persian Empire developed some of their thought based on the influence of new translations from Greek. So when you have new text from Greek, how does that affect your thought? How does that affect the reception of earlier Christian tradition? Today we're going to be discussing Sebastian Brock's The Bible in the Syriac Tradition. It's a fairly short handbook, a collection of a couple different works that Brock had written, all about biblical texts, interpretation, translation in the Syriac Christian tradition. So Nate, let's go back to the beginning. What is Syriac? Syriac is a Semitic language. So that is to say it's it's a language related to Hebrew, uh, to Arabic, Ethiopic, some of these other ones, um, the Canaanite languages especially. Um, but it's specifically a form of Aramaic. And Aramaic was uh, really the lingua franca of a lot of the of ancient Mesopotamia from pretty early, 9th, 8th century BCE, and then much more by the 5th century BCE. Um, but Syriac really emerges in the first centuries CE, first centuries of the Common Era, um, and is associated really with Christians, uh, although not exclusively with Christians. Yeah, sometimes people will say that Syriac or the Syriac Bible is the Bible now written in the language of Jesus, the language Jesus spoke. And that's not quite right, although it's on to something. Jesus probably spoke something like Jewish, Palestinian, Aramaic, and Syriac is indeed a close cousin of this. It's probably the closest cousin that we have substantial literature in. But Syriac, the language of Syriac, the Syriac versions of the Bible, which we'll be talking about today, are the versions of a Bible in a dialect of Aramaic that was associated initially with this city of Edessa, this imperial center and hub of uh, intellectual life in northern Syria. Right. I mean, we have evidence of Syriac um, in inscriptions uh, from the city of Edessa from 6 CE and up through, you know, the, the first and second century. And so these old Syriac inscriptions show us that there, Syriac was spoken there. It was the, the spoken language and gradually became a literary language. And part of that is that Syriac became part of an administrative language in this kingdom, this client state, Osrina, um, the, the capital being Edessa, that as it had its own kind of autonomy, they needed a language. And so the Edessan dialect becomes visible at this point. Um, they coin a script. And so that's when you start getting more literature and it later explodes and uh, becomes one of the biggest or is one of the biggest corpora of texts that we have from late antiquity. Yeah, just to speak to the extent of this, we have inscriptions from eastern China in Syriac, from late antiquity. There are Syriac communities that reach all the way down to southern India. This has a good claim to be the most widespread, geographically speaking, Christian language from antiquity. 
And Ian, you mentioned the scope of Syriac. And yeah, I, I do think that Syriac has one of the best claims to being uh, really the global, the language of global late antiquity in the sense that it reaches from the Eastern Roman Empire and sometimes further west all the way to what is modern day China, Central Asia. Um, and so in that sense, it's an important language for uh, Christianity, for religion, for culture in that period. But even just in terms of texts, we have a massive amount of stuff from Syriac. And so if any of you are listening and, you know, wanting to get interested in something, um, Syriac is a great field in, in this way that there are texts being discovered. There are new finds regularly occurring, things being edited, lots of exciting stuff to be done. And I think exciting stuff with a lot of importance for our understanding of the ancient world. And we'll talk about some of those new discoveries uh, later in our episode today. And Syriac isn't just an ancient language, right, Nate? That's right. Yeah. So there's a living community, a living use of the language from antiquity to today. Um, there is both classical Syriac that's still spoken uh, called Cthobanoio, a, a literary Syriac. And there's various kinds of local dialects, uh, often called Syraith, a kind of local uh, modern Syriac or Neo-Aramaic spoken in northern Iraq, parts of eastern Turkey, um, and actually in parts of the States as well and in Europe. So when we talk about Syriac Christianity, then, what do, what do we mean? It can be somewhat complex when people first get into it because there are a couple different Syriac churches or, or traditions to be involved in. Uh, a lot of this has to do with splits around uh, the Council of Chalcedon and Second Constantinople, these great controversies about the person of Christ. And so this time, obviously, there are big splits across Christendom and antiquity, fallout from these divisions. But Syriac Christianity in particular fragmented in basically three ways. After Chalcedon, you get more or less a three-way split. You have those who were supporters of the Council of Chalcedon, which uh, in modern times and in the later times were called Melkites from the uh, Syriac word for emperor, Malka. Also the Maronites are a church that arose from this sort of tradition. And so the Chalcedonian Christians. You then have Two groups of non-Chalcedonians, so people who reject the uh, statement of Chalcedon of two natures and one hypostasis and one person in Christ. And one of those is the so-called West Syrian tradition, and one of those is the East Syrian tradition. Why West and why East? Well, we're talking about the Roman-Persian border. So again, thinking how far Syriac goes, Syriac stretches beyond the Roman Empire. So in general, the East Syriac tradition kind of heuristically deals with Syriac Christians in the Persian Empire, and they are the ones who generally see themselves as heirs to Nestorius and the two-nature and two-hypostasis view of Christ. Um, there's a lot of, if you want to think of it this way, kind of original Persian Syriac Christianity, but after these councils, they also become theologically uh, what we call diophysite or two-nature. Uh, the West Syrians, then, are those who are today the Syrian Orthodox Church and are uh, called in the literature miaphysites from their view that in Christ there is one nature, miaphysis. Um, and many of them are Syriac Christians, the Syriac Orthodox. Uh, the Coptic Church is also aligned with this group. I should say, too, that in the East Syrians, the modern equivalents, broadly speaking, are the Assyrian Church of the East and the Catholic Chaldeans. Um, and there are other groups, too, but just kind of for the sake of uh, summary, that's, that's the gist, this three-way split, Chalcedonians, West Syrians, and East Syrians. Thanks, Nate. That's really helpful. I'm going to bring this back to territory I'm more comfortable on, which is the origins of Syriac Christianity. The story that early Christians tell about the origins of Syriac Christianity, found in Eusebius' church history and early Syriac texts like the teaching of Adai, is that the king of Edessa sent a letter to Jesus, 
And Jesus responded uh, with a letter that you can find preserved um, in Eusebius and elsewhere. And the king invited Jesus to sh- take shelter uh, in his kingdom. He said he would protect Jesus from his enemies. Jesus passes because, of course, Jesus knows he's got to die. But he promises to send one of his apostles later. That is Thaddeus, or in Syriac, Adai. As with virtually all apostolic foundation stories, historians today don't usually find these narratives credible. If we want to talk about the earliest evidence for Syriac Christianity that historians place credence on, uh, we're probably talking about a figure named Bardison, whose name is Syriac, and he is mentioned in a third century source, Julius Africanus, uh, sees him in the court of Abgar, and he's held up by Greek sources as a champion against Marcionism. So you can go back and listen to our Walter Bauer episode, episode 26. Uh, It seems that the first kind of Christianity that reached Edessa was probably Marcionite Christianity. And you see that all of our early Syriac authors are noted for their writings against Marcion. And we're told that Marcions in Syria were called Christians, and their proto-Orthodox opponents, people like Bardaisan, whose orthodoxy would later itself be questioned, uh, and Ephraim are called after the name of one of their important bishops, uh, Palut. But probably 3rd century is where we see, probably mid to late 2nd century is where we see the beginnings of Christianity in Syria with these Marcionites and their proto-Orthodox opponents. Right. And it's worth pointing out, too, that, you know, like a lot of studies on Christianization and and, uh, early Christianity, late antiquity, I think a lot of scholars talk about Christianity in Persia and in in Mesopotamia as trickling in. All right. I feel like we've introduced Syriac and Syriac Christianity. Nate, who is Sebastian Brock? To introduce Sebastian Brock uh, for someone in Syriac studies is to introduce someone who doesn't need an introduction. He's one of the giants of the field. And to show this, there's a joke that people who work in Syriac often repeat or you often hear that when you begin to work on something in Syriac, soon enough you discover that Brock wrote on this already in the 1980s, usually in some you know obscure journal. It's really remarkable what he's been able to accomplish. Just practically speaking, he most recently for many years was a, a reader in Syriac studies at the University of Oxford, uh, before then a lecturer in Aramaic and Syriac. He began his study in classics and oriental languages at Cambridge um, and then discovered, I think, Aramaic and uh, more Semitic languages. His first work was on the Septuagint and Syriac, and he went on to publish many, many things. It still is publishing many things on Syriac Bible, uh, Syriac text criticism, uh, long-term interest, especially in translation techniques and what, what changes in Greek to Syriac over the centuries his published texts and translations and many other things. I think most notably his work on Ephraim the Syrian, who we'll say a little bit more about, is important, and Isaac of Nineveh. Um, But that's just to list a few things of a very illustrious career. Sebastian Brock wasn't the first English-speaking scholar to publish on Syriac literature, obviously, but he needed to be the first scholar whose work we highlighted on this podcast because he really is the font of modern-day Syriac studies in the Anglophone world. So, Nate, what is this book? It's worth saying a little bit about what it is, uh, because it's, it is a little odd, uh, not, not odd in its content, but just it's, it's two pieces stitched together. That part one of this book was originally a correspondence course for Siri, which is an ecumenical research institute for Syriac and Kerala, India from the 80s. 
and it reflects some of that context and the fact that there's great bibliography, but it is meant to be relatively accessible uh, to non-specialists. Part two of the book is written as part of a series called The Hidden Pearl that traces the heritage of the Syrian Orthodox Church. That's from the early 2000s. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of redundancy, which he, he recognizes. Uh, he says this in the preface, but both are extremely accessible introductions to the Bible itself uh, in Syriac, how we get it, its interpretation, and then some other features of Syriac Bible studies. So the first part of the book is on the Syriac Bible proper. What manuscripts and translations do we have? And it starts with a treatment of the Old Testament. And we're going to do this pretty quick, and we're going to oversimplify, and Brock himself recognizes that we're simplifying. But I think you can effectively talk about the Syriac Old Testament as two different translations. There's the Syrohexapla and the Syriac Peshitta. We'll come back to more of the Peshitta because there's a part of it that's in the New Testament that will be important. And it's just saying that this becomes basically the standard version in Syriac churches in later centuries. Uh, the word is first attested in the 9th century, and it just means simple or straightforward. So the Peshitta is going to be the dominant Bible in Syriac language churches. It's the equivalent of the Latin Vulgate for the Syriac church. And I think it's important to recognize that the Old Testament Peshitta and the New Testament Peshitta are not the same translation. They don't emerge from the same context. The Old Testament Peshitta is probably, at least Brock represents it as, a Jewish translation of the Proto-Masoretic Hebrew Bible. Brock is persuaded by a bunch of similarities between the Syriac Peshitta of the Old Testament and these Aramaic Targums, these Jewish paraphrases slash translations of the Hebrew Bible, and also persuaded by the evidence that the Peshitta is working directly with the Hebrew text. Brock is persuaded that this translation must have originated in a Jewish context by Jewish scholars. This has been controversial, and we don't have time uh, in the context of this podcast to go into that whole debate. But there are compelling reasons to think that at least parts of it originated in Jewish communities, not with Christians. Yeah, and you know, the Peshitta is really interesting because, you know, it's a translation, but it's in a period when Syriac translation hasn't moved to a total concern for uh say, entirely directly representing the original text. Translation is very much uh, an interpretive act, as it always is. Um, but there's some great cases in the Peshitta worth pointing out. So one of them is in Genesis 4.8, where in the Hebrew text, uh, it's not said that Cain and Abel go out to a certain place. But in the Peshitta, it says that they go out to the valley. Now, um, in the uh, Septuagint and other versions, uh, it's said that they go out to the field. And I think most scholars recognize that this idea of going to the valley out of paradise reflects uh, certainly Ezekiel and other late ancient ideas of paradise as a mountain. And so this idea that you have a descent from paradise, and then you can imagine by contrast, an ascent back to paradise has a huge effect on the theological tradition. Um, and it's also a way that the translation is drawing in some other intertextual sources from the Hebrew Bible as it's rendering Genesis. And this is super useful for textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible, because our Hebrew manuscripts, our Masoretic text, is a 10th century vocalized text, so a text that has had vowels added to it, based on this earlier, what we call the Proto-Masoretic text, this just consonantal text of the Hebrew Bible. And the Peshitta is a rendering of that earlier underlying Hebrew text. So there are often different ways you can vocalize the consonants that made up the Hebrew Bible. And the Peshitta shows you how one interpretive community 
understood that text, which is not always the same way that we see the Septuagint understanding it. It is not always the same way that we see the Masoretes understanding it. It is a insight not only into, you know, another witness to the early Hebrew text, but also into the way that Hebrew text was being read and understood, probably by a second century Jewish community. Besides that they used what was basically a standardized Hebrew consonantal text, you know, emerging by the end of the first century CE, there's also some really interesting links between the Peshitta and some of these Targums that suggest that the Peshitta might even be earlier. So we won't go too much into that, but just to say that the, the translators, and there were many of them, uh, the books were translated at different times, but the translators of the Peshitta Old Testament were in contact with Jewish texts, probably Jewish communities, if not made by Jewish communities themselves, or again, the kind of uh, complex intertwining of Christian origins with, with Jewish communities. Then in the early 7th century, Paul, the Bishop of Tella, produced a new translation, what we call the Syro-Hexapla. And this is a new translation, probably using the product of Origen's text-critical work on the Old Testament, a new translation of the Greek Septuagint. Uh, and it's notable in part because not only is it giving us what I would call Origen's tetrapla, that is the product of his work on textual criticism, but it also gives a lot of marginal notes on known variant readings within the Greek tradition. So from the Syro-Hexapla manuscripts, you get a running text of the Greek text used in Alexandria in the 7th century with marginal notes on variant readings that existed in the early church and in Greek-speaking Jewish communities. It's really a remarkable translation in that it's it's a scholarly work. It's commissioned by the Alexandrian patriarch. It's done by, done near Alexandria by a, a bishop in exile during the Persian-Byzantine border wars in the early 7th century. And it's also part of the rise of Greek as a prestige language. Now, once Greek really becomes even more important to Syriac communities, there's an interest in what Brock and others have called mirror translation, directly mimicking some of the features of the source language in Syriac. Another notable feature of the Syriac Old Testament is its canon. Often we think of the Protestant canon and the Catholic canon. The, the Roman Catholic Bible has all these deuterocanonical works, sometimes called by Protestants the Apocrypha, right? And maybe you know that the Greek Orthodox also uses those deuterocanonical works with a few extra books. But the Syriac Church has yet a different canon. They include, in addition to the deuterocanonical works that we might know of from a Catholic Bible. They also have the Book of Fourth Ezra, the Apocalypse of Baruch, and what's sometimes called the Syriac Psalms, a few extra psalms that are only found in Syriac Bibles. Yeah, and one of the other really interesting case studies is that some of our earliest manuscripts, uh, one of them, the Codex Ambrosianus, uh, one of the oldest pandects or complete Syriac Bibles, it actually has part of Josephus's Jewish War, in addition to one to four Maccabees. So just to show that these these Bibles are circulating with a variety of different texts and the Syriac world, um, and that there is some flexibility here in what's included. This brings us to the New Testament, and the beginnings of the New Testament in the Syriac world is complicated. If we go back and read the teaching of Adai, this early Christian text about the origins of Christianity in Syria, it says that Thaddeus and his followers were dedicated to the reading of the Old Testament and the New, namely the Diatessaron and the letters of Paul. 
So if you never heard of the Dia Tesseron before, this was a harmony of the four Gospels. It was a new gospel assembled from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and potentially some other sources, by Justin's disciple Tatian in the 170s. And there's a lot of evidence, not only from the teaching of Adai, but later Syriac authors writing about the early Syriac church, and even early Syriac authors themselves, that Tatian's Diatessaron functioned as the gospel, the gospel of the Syriac church, at least from the 3rd century into the 4th and the 5th. It's useful to point out, too, in distinguishing the Diatessaron from the canonical gospels, that the Syriac church thought of them uh, differently in the title, that the Diatessaron was known as the mingled gospels, Evangelion Damhalte. They're mixed together, whereas the individual gospels, when they're uh, separately in, in four books bound together, uh, are called the separated gospels, Evangelion Damparche. They didn't know the difference, but the Diatessaron in part was thought to be the earliest and most widespread because we see a, a canonical author like Ephraim, uh, who we'll mention more on, commenting on it in the 4th century. It was known, it was read, it was commented on. It was part of what, what churches considered to be the gospel for them. The next evidence we have for the Syriac New Testament, the New Testament in the Syriac tradition, is what we as scholars, a modern title, call the Old Syriac Gospels. But the first manuscript of this, as Nate noted, discovered by William Curitan in the mid-19th century, just says as its title the gospel of the separated. That is, in contrast to the Diatessaron, the separate gospels. And this is a really remarkable translation. It's notable for harmonizing readings, readings that harmonize one gospel with another, that harmonize a gospel with itself, other passages within the same gospel. It's notable for all sorts of interesting paraphrastic translations. It's not trying to extremely literally render the Greek. It's giving interpretive translations. And it's notable also for agreeing with the Old Latin and Codex Beze, perhaps the most erratic early Greek manuscript, what's sometimes been called the Western text of the Gospels. Although its attestation in Syriac, the Eastern language, is one of the good reasons people don't like calling this the Western text anymore. So the Old Syriac Gospels are a really important witness to the variety of text types, as well as a early attempt at translating the Gospels, and therefore, of course, interpreting the Gospels in, let's say, the 3rd century. You know, you mentioned the word singular translation, but a lot of scholars like to call this the pre-Peshitta instead of Old Syriac, just to give it the sense that, I mean, these are different, that the different uh, manuscripts, the new fine fragments, I mean, suggest perhaps a single translation, but there are enough differences that it's giving us a, an earlier layer um, that is then revised into the Peshitta, which we can mention. Um, the other thing to say is that the discovery of, of one of the old Syriac manuscripts is very interesting, that it was found on Mount Sinai in the monastery there by Miss Agnes Lewis, one of the pair of Scottish twin sisters who uh, had interest in... Their, there's a great book on this by Janet Soskis called Sisters of Sinai that if you want to learn more about this great discovery, super interesting, totally recommend. So these are often called the Curatonian and the Sinaitic Old Syriac manuscripts. If you look, for instance, in a critical edition of the New Testament or you're reading a commentary, that's often how they'll refer to it. Sometimes the Sinaitic Syriac is called the Lewisonian in honor of Agnes Lewis who discovered it. And I actually like this because... Sebastian Brock, only a few years ago, I think in 2016, announced to the world the discovery of a new Old Syriac gospel manuscript that contained new portions of the gospels that we'd never had before. And this was also found at 
St. Catherine's on Mount Sinai. So it has an equally good claim to be called the Sinaitic Syriac. Um, it's often referred to as the New Fines Palimpsest. That means we now have two Sinaitic Palimpsests that are old Syriac Gospels. So I've advocated for calling this the Lewisonian, but who knows if that'll take. And while we're on the topic of newly discovered manuscripts of the Syriac New Testament, it's worth noting that Gregory Kessel just announced to us the discovery of yet another Old Syriac Gospel manuscript. So for over a century now, we've had exactly two Old Syriac manuscripts, two witnesses to this early 3rd century set of translations of the Syriac Gospels. And only in the last five years, we've discovered two new manuscripts. Now, unfortunately, Kessel's manuscript is identical and completely overlapping with the Kiritonian version. But that itself tells us something about the circulation of this gospel in antiquity. It's also become clear that it is one of the earlier translations. It was unclear for a certain amount of time how to fit these old Syriac in time. Uh, but we've been able to tell that they are before the Peshitta, for one, because the Peshitta retains some traces of these older readings and more archaic forms of Syriac or uh, old Syriac, while also revising it towards a more accurate translation in some cases, a more direct translation, and in some cases a slightly different Greek text. The scholar to really go to for this is F.C. Burkett, Francis Crawford Burkett, who argued compellingly that the old Syriac is a pre-Peshitta version of the Syriac Bible. Burkett uses lots of patristic citations as well as some linguistic evidence and some textual tradition evidence to make this case pretty compellingly. And while Burkett won the day on that particular issue, not all of Burkett's reconstruction is still accepted today. Burkett actually identified this bishop, Rabula, this 5th century important bishop of the Syriac tradition, as the translator himself of the Peshitta. Rabula's biographer says that Rabula prepared a new translation of the Syriac Gospels from the Greek, and Burkett identified this as the moment that the Peshitta originated. This has been critiqued by subsequent scholars, most famously by Arthur Vubis, and subsequent scholars who now recognize that the Peshitta probably didn't originate with one figure at one moment in time, but was a sort of a process. Uh, we actually do have some Syriac Peshitta manuscripts that have a mixed text tradition with some old Syriac influence, as well as the sort of standard Peshitta text. And it's also worth noting that this vision of the Peshitta as originating as a new translation of the Greek is a little bit misleading. It's probably better to think about this as a revision of the old Syriac text into a new translation. So someone is correcting the old Syriac gospels against a Greek manuscript. Because many of these unique old Syriac readings, be they harmonizations, glosses, or agreements with the so-called Western text tradition are taken over into the Peshitta, while at the same time, the Peshitta is often bringing the text closer to what we see in sort of 5th century Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Right. The Peshitta seems to be to have been completed more or less by the 5th century. That's the time when you begin to see it cited, and some of our earliest manuscripts appear shortly after. And so that, that you know, time frame, we can think of the Peshitta completed by the 5th century or so. The old Syriac seems to have been done somewhere between the 2nd and the 4th. And the other thing to mention is we, we haven't mentioned as, as much of which books are in which, the Diatessaron, kind of by its nature, is the Gospels, or God, what we think of as the separate Gospels into one. The only surviving Old Syriac are just parts of the Gospels, but it seems like there were some other pre-Peshitta translation of Acts and the Epistles because of the commentary tradition. 
And interestingly, this old Syriac Pauline epistles included the book of 3 Corinthians. Ephraim, in his commentaries on the Pauline epistles, says only heretics reject 3 Corinthians. And this, just because of the wide geographic spread of Syriac, influenced other liturgical traditions. So the Armenian church, for instance, um, which is heavily influenced by Syriac Christianity, took over 3 Corinthians from the Syriac Bible. The Peshitta has almost all of what would be in a modern Bible, with the exception of a few things. It doesn't contain the so-called minor epistles. Yeah, it's lacking 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. Right. It's worth noting, too, if you pick up a modern Syriac Bible, so like uh, some of the ones that were produced by the Bible Society in the early 20th century, you will actually find those books. But these are supplied from a later 6th century translation that may have been a part of the next one. We'll talk about uh, the Philoxenian translation or later ones. So I mentioned the Philoxenian version, and we're not going to say a lot about this, in part because we don't have any of it, or it's very unlikely we do. Uh, we know that the Bishop Philoxenus of Marburg, a very famous bishop from the 6th century, commissioned a revision. Um, and in part, this is because of theological controversies, that some of the loose renderings of previous versions were being used by his opponents for theological purposes. So we wanted to tighten things up. Problem is that for a variety of reasons, it didn't catch on or it wasn't preserved, and so we don't have manuscripts that attest it. It's possible that the minor epistles we mentioned are part of this, this Philoxenian translation, but Philoxenus himself doesn't cite these, and so it'd be unlikely, it seems unlikely that we'd have it if he himself doesn't cite them. So, so you might read about the Philoxenian version, but the ones that are published as Philoxenian are typically actually the Harclean text, which you'll see if you look at Brock's bibliography. Yeah, there's some naming confusion. If you want to know what evidence we do actually have for the Philoxenian version of the New Testament, go look at the publications of Jamie Walters, who's worked on this. The version that was unfortunately published under the name of the Philoxenian is what scholars now recognize as the Harclean, named after a bishop, Thomas Harkel, of the 7th century. Yeah, it's produced almost at the same time as the Syrohexepla, within a few years. It's part of the same monastery around Alexandria, and with an interest in uh, what Brock calls mirror translation, which is to say hyper-accurate representation of, uh, in this case, the Greek of the New Testament, such that every particle is attempted to be represented in the text. Um, there's also various diacritical signs, which are pretty interesting, but this is a scholarly translation, not one necessarily commissioned because of doctrinal disputes. The Greek is so literally translated, representing every single grammatical piece of the Greek, that often it produces Syriac that doesn't read as Syriac. Although it was hyperliteral, it doesn't mean it wasn't used by Syriac churches. And the Peshitta is by and large the dominant uh, version for liturgy and, and lectionaries, but the Harclean does actually show up in some lectionary manuscripts and is the basis for a Holy Week gospel harmony, as Brock points out. Yeah, the so-called Harclean passion harmony, which is not related to the Diatessaron, although the parallel seems uncanny, seems to have been used liturgically in Syriac churches. So I know uh, your listeners are obviously very interested in uh, translations of the Bible, but, uh, you know, from my perspective as someone who works a bit later, one of the most fascinating parts of the Syriac heritage, in addition to this material, is reception. There's a lot of cool distinctive features and, you know, the co robust commentary tradition in Syriac. So I feel like we should talk about that a bit, not least because that's a big part of Brock's book as well. And while this material is too often neglected by New Testament studies and pushed off into church history, I think it's really relevant and interesting for thinking about how the New Testament was read and how that can help us understand the New Testament itself. We've already mentioned that some of our earliest commentary is translation. 
that we've mentioned some features of the earlier Syriac translations that, you know, in their capacity as rendering the text are showing some of their context, whether it's knowledge of interaction with or even participation in Jewish traditions or, you know, intertextual reading within the Bible or extra biblical traditions. So that's the earliest layer. But by the fourth century, you have the first Syriac commentaries or texts that are commenting. You have Afrahat, uh, the so-called Persian sage in the fourth century, who we're not going to say much about here, but who has a bit against Jewish interpreters. He talks a lot about the right ways to talk about the Hebrew Bible. And he also has some discussion about how to interpret. But who we want to spend a little more time on is Ephraim the Syrian, a very famous Syriac author, extremely important for pretty much all Syriac traditions, including modern day Syriac Christians, uh, and also known in other languages. There's a robust corpus of Ephraim in Greek, a lot of it is uh, pseudonymous, but very influential. Ephraim's influence over the Syriac-speaking church is perhaps comparable to Augustine's influence over the Latin West or Basil's influence over the Greek-speaking East. He's one of these major figures who virtually all subsequent Syriac literature looks back to and cites. And while Nate will talk about the more interesting side of his corpus, the side of the corpus that I've worked more with is his commentaries. Most famously, he wrote a commentary on the Diatessaron. He just calls it the commentary on the gospel. He doesn't seem to know this word Diatessaron. As well as commentaries on Genesis and Exodus, the commentaries on the Pauline epistles, and a few other books from the Christian Old Testament. These are traditionally just ascribed to Ephraim. And Ephraim almost certainly had a hand in their production. Some more recent scholarship, I'm thinking particularly of Christian Lange's book, has argued that there are features of these commentaries that betray events that happened after Ephraim's death. So perhaps these commentaries are something like the collections of his notes by his school. But they certainly do go back to Ephraim, the teacher. And a lot of these, if we haven't mentioned already, survive in Arminian. So there's another layer of, of complexity there. So the, the other part of Ephraim's corpus that I think is maybe a bit more well-known, if, if we can say it this way, is, is his poetic works. He was a masterful poet, a true artist, and I think um, you know many people enjoy reading his poems. They're widely available in English. You can find them pretty easily. And part of what's notable is, is how these make extensive use of typology, striking use of all kinds of images, uh, whether it's old and the new or new and new typology or symbolism. His poems are rife with this. He writes um, both memory, these verse homilies, and madrasha, these sort of um, hymns uh, or didactic poems. And speaking generally about Ephraim's approach, how does he interpret? He himself talks about two ways of doing it. One that he calls suranaya, and which is sometimes translated factual, but probably is better something like historical or about the things that happen that sense of factus. And then another is ruhanaya, or spiritual. So the first is how a lot of his commentaries tend to be. That is, he's interested in events, uh, interested in kind of one understanding of how things happen and interpreting what's there, not in our sense of factual as in what really is there, but in the sense of how the events ran. But his poems and poetry are full of the second, I think. He doesn't disregard the factual, but a lot of really interesting spiritual interpretation. Again, using typology and what he calls the mysteries. His word for what we might call allegories or symbols is raze, mysteries. And so th this is a distinctive part of his corpus. And Sebastian Brock has expanded this to say, uh, you know, this tradition continues. And so this poetic typology is really distinctive of the Syriac tradition's reading of the Bible as a whole. And these generically are really interesting to read. 
Ephraim writes these dialogue poems, and the dialogue poems continue to be written in imitation of the same style, in which two biblical figures go back and forth. So, for instance, we'll have a very creative extended dialogue between Jesus and Satan, between Mary and an angel. And my favorite is one uh, between a cherub in heaven and the thief to whom Jesus promised that he'd be with him in paradise. And so the, the imagined antiphonal response is the thief shows up and the angel is sort of wondering what he's doing and, and not going to let him in. And so they go back and forth and, you know, it's it's, it's sort of charming and it's uh, it plays out some of the tension in the text. How does this thief get into heaven? And a lot of them were probably chanted or at least envisioned as being chanted as well as read. Syriac poetry is not just playful. Ephraim writes these hymns against the heresies, and we have serious theological controversy, polemic, being done in poetry. So Ephraim kicks off this poetic tradition, as I mentioned, but it continues on, and really the 5th century is probably the height of this activity. There are two really influential poets on both sides of some of the divisions we mentioned who uh, who were well-known and produced a ton of what are uh, of these memra or poetic verse homilies. And so one is Jacob of Sarug, very famous West Syrian author. So again, those uh, in general associated with the uh, Miaphysite position, although Jacob's own Christology is, is less clear. Uh, and on the east side, we have Narsai associated with the Diophysites and someone influenced by Theodore of Mopsuestia. They continue on this tradition. They have very vivid verse homilies that retell the biblical uh, narratives. And a big part of this is expanding the narratives. They'll bring out moments of ambiguity, uh, maybe things that puzzle a reader, and they'll linger on them. So they're they're typically poetic, but there are also homiletic sections. So there'll be a little you know illustration and then also some teaching inside. So we're a long ways from the New Testament here. But Nate, might you know anything about the seventh century? <laughs> you know, there there are things I guess I'd mention. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in this century that I think is interesting for scholars of the New Testament. In general, the idea is that there's a lot of people writing on biblical text at this time and a lot of interesting interpretations. I work on an author named Baba the Great, a very influential uh, monastic and church leader from the early 7th century, East Syrian. In one of his texts, he talks about scars of Christ in John 20 and wonders Basically, how do these scars work if Jesus' body has been perfected and healed after the resurrection? It's no longer a damaged body. And so why is it that it would still have scars? They seem like defects. And so he, he has what seems to be his own innovation. It might, it might be earlier. I, we're not sure. But he says that these scars were temporary, that they are pedagogical, They're shown in that moment, and then uh, kind of hidden afterwards. Just as before the resurrection, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ shows his glory and that glory goes away. So very creative interpretation that's actually picked up in later tradition. So just one example, one tidbit there. So all that to say, um, there are interesting things sometimes buried or sometimes just contained in commentaries from the seventh century that I think, especially those interested in reception history would do well to examine, to see how are these Christians, uh, sometimes beyond the Roman empire reading this or that passage. So there's a new flourishing, a sort of consolidation in the 8th and 9th century into a renaissance in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries of Syriac literature that features some of their most famous systematic commentators on the Bible. Um, some authors that I've worked a little bit with, Ishodot of Merv, Dionysius Barsalibi, who's really important as a witness to several early Christian traditions, Bar Hebraeus, sort of one of the capstones of this period, 
Nate, what should scholars of the New Testament and early Christianity know about this period of Syriac commentators? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting period because on the one hand, it seems like a period where there's less quote-unquote creativity. Now, I, I don't mean this as a value judgment, just that there's a lot of compilation going on. I mean, there is creativity, and part of that is the compiling. That means we get all kinds of excerpts in these later commentaries that even though they're later are attesting earlier traditions. So you mentioned Ishodot of Merv, a 9th century commentator. Uh, we also have Theodore Barconi from the 8th century and Isha Barnoon of the 9th century. All three of these, in addition to their own comments, have all kinds of quotes from earlier Greek and Syriac authors, often very interesting. Again, worth reading depending on what passages you're looking at or trying to uh, mine earlier Syriac tradition. And this really continues, that then both in the West and East Syrian traditions, you have Katani, you have uh, authors who are compiling, and especially, as you mentioned, during the Syriac Renaissance in the 11th to 13th century, very learned Dionysius Barsalibi has a lot of commentaries on scripture and uses sources from West and East. Uh, scribes, I think, also uh, readings important for early New Testament matters, despite being so late. I yeah, he preserves some really interesting traditions about uh, Hippolytus and the Gaius Caius controversy over the canonicity of the Gospel of John in, in the city of Rome, as well as some early traditions about Tatian's Diatessaron. Dionysius Barsalibi gives descriptions of the contents of the Diatessaron that don't show up in any other source that we're aware of. So, you know, despite being very late, uh, a lot of these commentaries are very important for what they preserve. And so in that sense, you know, again, I encourage people to dig into it to, uh, you know, especially if you find passages you're working on, it's worth checking. So a lot of these are translated. Certainly many of them are edited. And it's a great place to, to look for reception history. And they often go back earlier than you might expect from that, you know, 11th, 11th 12th century date. You know, and while we're talking about these later these later compilers that preserve earlier texts, it's also worth noting that to study Syriac often takes you into other Eastern Christianities. You know, Ian, as you, you and I have worked on Armenian. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that touches other languages. And a lot of Syriac authors, or at least a great number, seem to have been translated into Arabic and only survived there, or Ethiopic in some cases, and Armenian. So it is a world that expands, and there are a lot of things in Syriac— that then get preserved elsewhere. Um, so it's a big world to explore with lots of corners. Nate, as you mentioned, this is a very accessible introduction to the Syriac Bible and its tradition of interpretation in the Syriac church. What does Brock leave out of this narrative? Well, I, you know, you hate to criticize such a useful book, so I, I don't really have criticisms of it, of it in that respect because it's not meant to be comprehensive. But I do think for those interested, um, one of the, the things I noticed re on rereading this time was less emphasis on some of the ascetic traditions in the Syriac community. So there's a lot of interesting reading of ascetic communities of the Bible. I'll just give you one example. The Book of Steps, an anonymous 4th century or so book from northern Mesopotamia, has a really interesting way of sorting out different kinds of ethical prescriptions in the Bible as either for the just, your kind of standard Christian who's on the way, and the perfect, the more elite uh, level. And they're not just sometimes, you know, old versus new. Jesus says this, the Old Testament says this. Sometimes he'll, uh, the author will pair off Paul versus Jesus, or even Jesus versus Jesus saying, um, you know, if you do not leave your father and mother, uh, you cannot be my disciple. This is for the perfect. But then quoting again in Matthew about caring for parents or honoring them and saying, this is for the just. 
So it's only a short example, but just to say that communities uh, struggling with the life of perfection, of the moral life, also have really interesting negotiations of the diversity in the New Testament that modern scholars also wrestle with. So Nate, what would you recommend scholars read if they're interested in learning more about the Syriac tradition? Yeah, you know, it's a great time uh, to be interested in Syriac because we now have a, a lot of things in English that are useful. So the two things I would recommend that just came out in the last year or two are one, a beautiful anthology from University of California Press called Invitation to Syriac Christianity. A lot of great selections, including one in biblical interpretation, but representative of really the whole swath of Syriac late antiquity. So that's Invitation to Syriac Christianity. And there's also a really nice section on Syriac in a volume called Eastern Christianity, A Reader by James Walters, Jamie Walters. Uh, it's, a, it's in there with some other languages, Georgian, Ethiopic, Coptic, Armenian, and Arabic. But um, the beginning section is on Syriac and gives some introduction and some representative texts. The other thing I'd say is a lot of people like starting with Ephraim. Uh, there's a lot out there you can pretty easily find, so not a bad place to start as well. Great. Thanks so much for joining me again, Nate. Well, thanks for having me. Always great talking with you. Stars than you. Ah.